0: What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome, Gwen. Hi. How are you, Bonnie? I'm good today. Thanks so much for joining us. A fundamental belief that we hold, and one of our whys for this podcast, is that by sharing our real stories, we learn from each other, we get to know each other, and we bridge that distance between each other. What story can you share with our listeners about how you know that this is not a dress rehearsal? Big question.
2: I guess I should start off by saying that the biggest come to Jesus that I had, so to speak, was a dream, believe it or not. This was back... Quite a few years ago, I'd actually started my second general manager's assignment, so I just relocated to a new community, and I remember waking up in a cold sweat, and you know, I remember dreams sometimes. Other dreams, I, I have no recollection. This one was very vivid, and when I woke up, I literally was having a hard time trying to process what was going on, and in the dream, I was riding on a school bus, this yellow school bus, and I was standing in the middle in the aisle. There was people crowded in the bus, like totally full. And I kept trying to reach across the people who were on the bus in order to be able to pull down that little drawstring. You know, the one I'm talking about when you want to signal the driver to stop, you pull on the cord. I do. Yeah, I do. And the driver stops. Well, I couldn't reach it. And I was in a complete panic, so I was bending over, looking through the people's heads to see where the bus was going. And all I could see was it was going really fast, and things were zipping by, and I knew that I wanted to go home. And no matter what I did, I could not get this bus to stop. So when I woke up, it was a startling feeling because I, I was breathing hard, and I thought I I wanted to go home, Sure. but I realized it was a dream, obviously. And so it was perplexing, and I spent... The next couple months, literally, thinking about that dream, I mentioned it to one of my brothers, and he said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, it's probably because you moved and you were just, you know, thinking about moving. But I'd moved so many times in my career, a total of seven times, as a matter of fact, from one transfer place to another in pursuit of my goal. And I'd never had any kind of fear about moving. In fact, I always loved it. I loved the idea of going to a new place and meeting new people and having a new adventure. So I wasn't really sure what the whole purpose of that dream was. So I started thinking about it. And over the course of months, and in fact, a couple years, I came around to thinking that maybe that dream was kind of a wake-up call. Like, what does going home mean? And so I started to really think a little bit about this bus is a metaphor. And the fact that it was going so fast and it started to feel like it was out of control and I couldn't stop. Wow. <laughs> started to come through when I really started to um, you know, think about it and try to journal about it and figure out what's the purpose, you know, why did I have this dream and why was it so vivid? And so that call to, to, to so to speak, that that wake up of just taking time to think about that dream and what was out of control. And why did I feel I couldn't stop? And what was I missing? Really got me to thinking about my life in general. And I thought about, you know, at 50 years of age, we have 50% of our life left to live. And I was a little bit past 50 when I had that dream. And we spend so much of our time preparing for the first part of our adulthood, right? We go to college if we're lucky. We have a study. We have a career goal. Maybe we're lucky enough to get married and have some children and a family, but we don't necessarily think about the second half of that adulthood. And so I started thinking about that and wondering, well, is this time now, you know, I'm in my career, I'm at the height of my career, I've achieved my goal, I'm really loving it, I'm living the life that I thought I wanted, but am I thinking about the next half, that second half, and how am I preparing for that? So it started me journaling, if you will, and really getting a lot more intentional about the life choices that i thought I made and what I wanted to make to prepare for the future. So I started journaling, and over the course of like five years, I went from being sure that I had made decisions and choices that lined up with what I wanted in my life to all of a sudden thinking, well, what does a well-lived life really look like? And I guess that's when I started to realize that I had to pay more attention because I was on a bus. It was going fast. And it was going from place to place. And I hadn't really necessarily thought about the end destination, I guess.
1: Well, I think this is so powerful that it one, it came to you in a dream, and two, that it took a fair amount of time for you to process what that meant oh, yes. in, in a life that by all appearances was going along swimmingly. So we'll come back to this idea. Thank you for sharing that story. I think there's a little bit more detail we'll talk about before we finish, but that's, <laughs> that's helpful to understand. You're a woman who's had a busy career and a couple different lives, as we all do. Tell me about some of the detours or setbacks that you've experienced during your career. <laughs> on that reckless bus,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep. it ran off the road a couple of times. In fact, early on in my career, when I I knew what I wanted to do for the first half of my adult life, literally when I was thirteen years old, I uh, grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, watching a television station, and that particular station was one I really admired the general manager. And at that time, television was a lot different. Now, remember, this is back in the last century, right? So we're going in the way back machine. Mm -hmm. But what was important to me about it was the station, not only did it have important information in news, but it did a lot with community service. And the general manager would get on and talk about editorials where he highlighted things that were important to the community. And I thought, Wow. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to make a difference in a community. And I admired the way that not only he but that television station did that. So like at 13 and 14, that's where I wanted I set my sights that that's what I wanted to do. That's pretty early. It's very early. And I got on that bus, right? And mm-hmm. the I wasn't able to break into television. Initially when I got out of college, television back in the day was extremely competitive. It was really hard and I lived in a pretty big market. So my first job out of college was literally working for a cable television operator and he had a access channel that only reached 17,000 people. <laughs> but for me it was like that's my break, right? That was the yes. first time I got on the bus and I loved that job. I was in it for a little while and eventually I got laid off. So that was the first hiccup was It was a small access television station. And it really had a very small budget. And ultimately, I got laid off. So I took a detour. I got out of television. Because again, the experience I had was in cable. Back in the day, that was like it didn't exist if you were in broadcasting. So I got out of that. And I took a detour into doing some marketing jobs in retail for a shopping industry. I opened a a major shopping center. Anyway, I did that for a little while. And that gave me the opportunity to meet people as an advertiser in the television industry. So that detour, ultimately, I picked up some opportunity in the way of networking, where I met somebody who ultimately gave me my first job in television. And it was a sales job. Actually, it was doing marketing and retail research. So it was a foot in the door, right? In a big market, that's not an easy thing to accomplish. But I knew once I had my foot in the door that I was going to be able to you know, at least find opportunity along the way. And coincidentally, the opportunity was at that very station. So I was totally excited about it. And that was the next time that the bus got back on the road. And I was able to pursue a career through sales until ultimately two things happened. I got fired twice on my way to becoming a general manager. And that's hard to say out loud. A lot of people don't want to talk about being fired. But I I wanted to talk about it because I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes in those setbacks, there's opportunity. And that's one of the things that was really hard to deal with. The first time I got fired uh, was we'd had a succession of changes in sales management. I'd actually gone from that marketing position into a a salesperson position, uh, which I did, I thought, successfully for a, a period of time actually for about four and a half, almost five years. And a new general sales manager came in. And ultimately, after a year of working with him, he fired me. And I was completely like taken aback. And the reason he gave me was that I was a quote-unquote inconsistent performer. <laughs> and I thought, okay, inconsistent after all this time. But in reality, they were putting a huge focus on generating new business. And I came to understand after, again, self-reflection, that I wasn't a hunter. I didn't have a killer instinct. And in sales, that's something that in certain sales cultures is really valued. Now, what was really interesting was I had enough connections in the industry where I got a recommendation from somebody who knew me to apply for a national sales manager's job in Texas. And when the person who interviewed me there actually called my former general sales manager at that station who'd fired me and he gave me a great recommendation for the next position. So as a manager if you will, he saw potential in me that he didn't see that he wanted in that hunter person. So it was an opportunity I seized it. I did that job for a while and again, change in management the guy who hired me was there for seven months and then he got promoted and sent to another market. And after a while, they hired somebody else who came. And then after a bit, he fired me. (laughs) And (laughs) here we go again. Here we go again. So when I have to think about how how much of the story I want to tell, he called me in the Friday before Super Bowl Sunday, after I'd worked for the guy for like a year and a half. And he said there was uh, nothing personal, but he wanted to make a change in the local sales manager's position. And I thought, wait a minute, that's me. (laughs) Uh. But the way he said it, it was just like, you know, you have to stop and absorb what's happening. Sure. So he said, it's nothing personal. I've decided I just wanted to make a change. Well, our sales numbers were good. I thought I was doing a good job hiring. You know, all this stuff is, I'm trying to process it because I didn't really understand. The good news was I had a connection in the business who I got another interview with. I got that job within even 90 days. And it was a promotion at that and what was interesting about this new role was I figured, okay, something I'm not getting about all of this. I'm missing something. And I decided that my ability to figure out the impact that I was having on this new manager and what I was doing in my job, I really needed to take a hard look at that. And so I decided and made an a intentional decision to work really hard on my impact that I had with other people and my interpersonal relationships. Once I made that commitment, my career took off.
1: (laughs) So, Gwen, there's so much that you've shared in this experience that I think is worth highlighting. And and one thing for women in particular, but really for anyone, that the ability to be good at sales is such an important skill set. And I think a lot of women, adverse, you know, think about sales as something adversarial, perhaps, or or just not within their. Uh, natural skill set, and I really would beg to differ with that. And your experience that I, what I heard in your story is how successful you were in sales and how quickly sales changes. I'm married to a sales professional, and his skill set is so profound in his ability, but he's been fired more than once as well. It's <laughs> it's the nature of sales, is truly my understanding. And it, it and being good is really a reflection of how you get to the next step, and it's not the fact that you got fired because for sales goals to change is like breathing for for a corporation or a company that's that's very natural and happens all the time and they decide they're going to go a different direction and the sales skill that was there doesn't fit the new situation. So I just want to emphasize the fact that we you know being in sales can be a step to so many things and I'm pleased that not only did it not crush you when you had those setbacks or detours but you Eventually kept leading you to what you would ultimately thrive in. Yeah.
2: And again, it's, I think that's part of what you learn when you've had enough detours is that there you have a choice. You can either feel defeated and like a victim, or you can figure out what can I learn from this.
1: Exactly. And, and of course, because we're women, and not to say that men never experience these, uh, detours. But a woman's career is almost always going to be impacted uh, potentially by parenthood if they decide to have children. Certainly could be affected by a marriage uh, in terms of earning capacity and hours worked. And then I happen to know that that you're a great daughter and took care of your mom with other family members as as she was finishing uh, her life. So how do these kinds of interruptions, what would you say to young women who you've lived all that and they may be facing some of that? Well, it comes
2: down to choice. And we have, if you're really clear on what matters to you, then you have to figure out, okay, every choice you make, it either puts you in a direction that you're going towards your values or away from your values. I was really lucky. I was married to a man who career was not important for him. I could not have achieved what I achieved as easily in making the moves that I had to make. And the dedication that I had to make if I hadn't married somebody who was supportive of my career. In fact, if you looked at it from a concept of traditional roles, he was more of a wife, part-time worker than I was. I was driven by my career. So he had primary responsibility for my daughter being you know, after school. He was the person who went on field trips with the class. Uh-huh. So he did all of those things which enabled me to really be dedicated and spend more time in my career. When it came to my mom, as you mentioned, you know, I, I helped along with my sister. She and I had most hands- on responsibility for caring for my mom as she was dealing with her cancer. I was past my personal goals at that point, and I had just started this new business that I'm running now, and that was another harsh reality was you know, I thought I knew what was going to happen when i i because I prepared for a long time to make that break, uh, to leave television and then start my own. Uh, practice. And it was right at that time. I had about a year under my belt before my mom got really sick, and I had to make that determination and decision. And I made a different one at that point. I rather than delegate primary care responsibility, I actually assumed more of it. But I had the flexibility and the luxury of doing that because I'd achieved that career goal that I was so important to I me mean, when I was thirteen. I was on the other side of that. So caretaking, which I had played a secondary role in. I, that sounds funny to even say that, doesn't it? A secondary <laughs> role. No, I, I was an attentive mother and I did the things that I, I wanted to do in terms of you know being a mom. But at the same
1: time, I, career was first and I
2: had the luxury of having support.
1: Well, I really appreciate you highlighting that and kudos to the spouse that you chose for that role, because uh, we always joke inside the office, who doesn't need a wife in the kindest terms, because the wind beneath your wings when you're trying to go through a career is often someone who can do the other things that you just can't get done in a day if one person is working long hours and, and building that career. So that I think that um, there could be a whole podcast around how we choose partners and how we think about about that. So thanks for sharing that. But today you do something pretty different. Maybe you'll draw some parallels too. But how did you go from television to helping leaders facilitate large scale change today, which is what you're doing?
2: Earlier, I mentioned the important of knowing what really matters to you. And if you know what your values are, and you're really clear on those, and by the way, they change throughout the course of your life, right? Your values at 20 are going to not be the same values that you have at 50. It's, it's a natural progression. If you have the luxury again of doing something beyond survival, right? Some of us don't have that luxury. We have to work and we have to have the fundamentals of finances drive those decisions. But if you're lucky and you have the opportunity to have choices, then the choices that you make, you make towards your values. And one of the reasons that I got into television I alluded to earlier was to try to make a difference within a local community. Well, the industry had started to change and consolidate. And this is back now in the uh, aughts, if you will, the early 2000s, where media in general, but particularly television, had started to consolidate. And our company had made a really high leveraged purchase, which put us on, uh, we were really overly leveraged and put us on an unstable financial course, which means what? We're gonna be a target for takeover. So when that 2007 financial crunch started. And through 2008, our company went through a corporate bankruptcy. Now, the dream that I referred to, by the way, had happened five years earlier. So I was already really thinking in terms of what does a well-lived life look like. And I was old enough to think about what's my next 20-year plan look like, because I was always a planner. (laughs) And so I decided when the company went into a corporate bankruptcy, it was really time to look at additional options. I didn't make the decision to leave then, but I thought it was important to really evaluate, you know, what does that will live like? life look like? Is it time to get off the bus? And if I do get off the bus, what's my inherent skill set? What are the things that I have been told I do really well and that I've been valued for? Because that's the second piece in making any kind of big transition is to know your values, but also to know your strengths. I think if you use your strengths, it's like, have you ever watched that, that program Chopped? On television, do you know what I'm talking
1: about? Yeah, the food show. I do know what you're talking about. Yes, and it's
2: it's a funny way of thinking about it. But if you know what your values are, your basket, if you will, is that it's a basket of skills, and you get basically four different ingredients in that show. Chopped, right? They give you four ingredients, and the ingredients are oftentimes wacky. You know, like potato chips, lizard gizzards, and they, they give you things that are not workable. But what's interesting is if you understand the qualities of those skills and or those ingredients, you can apply them in so many different ways. And you just watch that show and you see how each chef uses those ingredients in different ways. So I knew what my values were. And I had to figure out how do I take those skills or those strengths or my ingredients, if you will, and assemble them in a way that fits the next 20 years. So you basically have what? Your experience. That's one ingredient. You have your values, that's another ingredient. Trying to think what are the other ingredients.
1: Probably time, amount of time you can devote. I wouldn't say time
2: as much as again, we're talking because time is really not that that big of a deal. It time's flexible. I don't even believe in time, but we'll save that conversation for another day. <laughs> you know, your personal values, your experiences, your relationships, and, and ultimately your strengths. So when you think of it that way. I used two tools to help me process all this during that, that bankruptcy. I identified what my strengths were and my skill set, and then I started to explore my own chop basket. And the two tools that I used were a personal journal where I would take and try to reflect and really break down some of the things that it was hard to process with a trusted source. I, had, I did hire an executive coach to work with me to, to also help process that. But my personal journal is where I kind of thought all this through, if you will. And the other thing I created was an electronic journal where I cataloged all this stuff that I was accumulating. Because if you just have pieces of paper all around, it's really hard to get like a sense of the recipe you're it building. Is, it is. So that in that electronic journal, I took time to actually chronicle my values. I took time to figure out who my champions were to think about different career options. I did all of that over the course of the two years. And when the bankruptcy was over, they actually offered me a position. But I decided at that point that the consolidation, the way the industry was going, it was not my next 20-year plan because I wasn't going to be able to do what I did before.
1: And so, as you, ha- so to move from that situation, because now you've kind of said to, to yourself and, and to them, I'm done. I'm moving to it in a different direction. I'm, and did you know at that time that you were going to go help leaders make these large scale changes? And, yep. and what do you do to help them? In a
2: nutshell? In a nutshell, because I realize I'm talking an awful lot here. Sorry about that. That's okay. Once you get going, it's hard to. I, uh, that's right. Boil Give us it lots it down. of
1: good material.
2: I do two things. First of all, I do executive coaching. Coaching, by the way, is not psychiatry, and it's also not mentoring. I actually took courses and got certifications so that I could learn to coach in a way that was beyond mentoring. So it's understanding what somebody's strengths are, understanding what their goals are, and then supporting them through that development. So there's a whole skill set that goes with that. And I actually took those courses. It meant having to get up at 6.30 in the morning. And during that bankruptcy, by the way, I was running two television stations in two different time zones. So it took a commitment in order to start laying the groundwork and preparing for that because I thought maybe that's an option. So that was one thing,
1: so Gwen, I want us to just stop you there for a minute because we've mentioned the television station bankruptcy several times, and this is such this is going to be such an important topic <laughs> over the next year. I just want to put a fine point on that particular item when companies go into bankruptcy. Sometimes people think the company goes away and sometimes that's true, but more often than not, it's actually the time period when we stop, put the brakes on things and reorganize to go forward. So I just wanted to tuck that in there in case any listener is confused by the idea that the television station was in bankruptcy and then they offered you a position and then they went forward and you went forward in a different direction. Right. So executive coaching is one way of supporting.
2: The other thing is part of what I recognized when the television industry was going through that change, they were at an inflection point. They had to decide what's our mission going forward as an industry. And that's either to contract, focus on scale and efficiencies, which is the course that they ultimately elected to go on. So they were looking for consolidation and scale and efficiencies as a way to make more profit. Well my skill set is something completely different. I like to innovate, I like to develop things, I like to adapt as things change and they weren't interested in that. So that skill set of being able to look at opportunity and find it in spite of change and in light of change is what I'm really good at. So organizations who are facing that same inflection point today, and and frankly, most are as a result of what we're going through now in the pandemic. That ability to live in that in between space is what I really excel at. And so a lot of the work that I do now is helping individuals and also organizations live in that in between space.
1: So when people are going through change, as you know, because this is your life's work, they—they they, it's not a linear path. So a lot of times they, they, you know, two steps back, one step forward. So what do you think makes people going through that? And specifically, if you can address how your clients are navigating all the disruption that's been brought on by the pandemic. You know, it's interesting
2: because as I've, the last couple of years, people keep saying to me, do you have a book? Have you written a book? <laughs> and I think, oh, you know, I... I really don't want to write a book because so much of what I do is granular and organic. It's not really like dock-in-a-box solution. I really, because again, that ability to look at a situation and treat it as unique is something that you can't just formulate a book. But I finally got around in January to writing a book because I thought one thing I'm seeing that is the common thread through all these situations, whether it's coaching or whether it's through the organizations, is that that ability to grasp and work with uncertainty. So maybe I'll write a book about that. So I started in January, and I had a pretty good head of steam. I had like seven chapters in, and then the pandemic hit. Ah, <laughs> ah. And I, I looked at what I'd been writing, and while it was relevant, that pandemic basically smacked me upside the head and said, okay, wait a minute, this is a living lab. you got to pay attention. So I put the book aside, and I really have just like taken a deep dive now into working individually with people and organizations on exactly that. It's how do people deal with that vast amount of uncertainty? And what I'm noticing is, is that uncertainty triggers three unconscious things, whether you're an organization or you're an individual. That's fear. And fear comes in so many sizes and shapes, right? So depending on what you're afraid of, that uncertainty piece is going to trigger those uncertainties and those fears. The second thing that that uncertainty triggers is cynicism. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, that's a really big part of their defense mechanism, right? They get really cynical instead of being open and being able to look at choice and look at opportunity. It's easy to go back to being that victim. And the third thing is judgment. A lot of times we decide whether something's going to be good or bad before we've even had an opportunity to live with it for a while. So. Those three things are really what I see now. As people, it's really easy to not understand, first of all, that those unconscious dynamics are oftentimes the very things that prevent people from being able to take advantage of the situation as it is right now. And that inability to deal with change. I read a book, um, it's actually the one that precipitated my idea for that book that I started in January, and it was called The Vertigo Years. I read this at the end of last year. And it talked about how at the turn of that 18th into the uh, 19th century, well, actually, there was a period of 45 years, that there was so much innovation that occurred then, a lot of which we're still experiencing now. But think about going from having horse-drawn carriages to bicycles, to airplanes in the period of 45 years. That's astounding to go through that amount of change. And a lot of the, the things that we're experiencing now as a people, contraction, suicide rates being on the increase, fear of the other, tensions with immigrants, all of those same things and many more population decrease. That was the other thing that happened, that those same things are happening now and it wasn't so much the nature of the change that was occurring that precipitated a lot of that, but it was the velocity.
1: Rate of change. I, I think those are really important points, and I'm pretty excited to know that you're writing a book because I know you'll finish it, and I do hope <laughs> you'll include those three things, the way you articulated that, I think is the essence Of understanding. In our world, we tell people and clients all the time to plan for rainy days. It rains in everybody's life. We never know how long and how badly it'll come, but we know that it will come. So I'm really looking forward to more conversation and specifically uh, encouraging you to finish that book, because I think that's exactly the essence of what we've all been living and the way you said it, being open to change, because to me, and I'm sure you feel Similarly, this is uh, one of those truly golden opportunities to reimagine everything if we want to. So you and I share an interest in leadership and all that that entails. At this moment, it feels to me as if personal leadership, how we conduct ourselves has never been more important. You just touched on some of that. But do you agree? And can you expand on how those hoping for leadership outside themselves, we might be waiting forever kind of on our own, might develop leadership within themselves?
2: I think that's one of the most exciting things about the opportunity that we have ahead of us, and that is that notion of leadership is being fundamentally challenged. Mm. Hierarchical leadership and the heroic leadership is being challenged in a way that I think it, it's not we're not going to go back to that. We can't. The most challenging problems that we face as a society, in businesses and as individuals have nothing to do with making a linear decision anymore because they're so complex and there's so many things that are interrelated, we have to be able to work together differently. Collaboration and that ability, that impact that we have on others, that thing that got me fired the first time, I think is really, really important. And so our ability to not just collaborate on what we know, but how we interweave ourselves with others is really important. Now, what that means is, different in different situations. But thinking about, are you a net positive when you interact with other people? When you contribute to something, what is it you're contributing? If it's your knowledge, guess what? (laughs) Knowledge is being outstripped by computers and the ability to just take huge volumes of information and process it quickly. So the future of mankind has nothing to do with being smart or information. Those things are going to be taken over by computers. Complex problems requires a different skill set and it's a skill set that everybody can develop. And that's one of the things that I think is is part of leadership is our ability to ask curious questions. It's not what we know, it's what we don't know and what Else we should be paying attention to. That is a hallmark, right, of leadership in terms of what it takes in order to have vision. So, just knowing that your curiosity and the questions that you ask is a fundamental trait of leadership. You can practice that everywhere. So, listening and how we listen is another one of those things. What makes the best leaders? It's somebody who has followers. If you can't establish empathy and your ability to listen deeply to what other perspectives are, you're not going to be a leader. It's that simple. You might be a heroic leader where you can just demand other people's compliance and their participation. But in the leadership of tomorrow, our ability to collaborate depends on what our ability to be able to work with people, you can be an iconoclast, brilliant, at the head of your field, a real expert. But if no one wants to cooperate or work with you, you're going to be on a very lonely path and you're not going to be able to get anything done. So those are just two factors, I think, in terms of how you develop your leadership is your, uh, the impact that you have on others and your ability to listen with curiosity and to ask curious questions.
1: So that's, that's really a good expansion of the idea of personal leadership. And the, it's nice to hear you say that it's something we can all develop. I, I agree with that. And so just expand a little bit further about why you think who we are becoming is more important than what we know. You talked about that, but then you also used the word followers, which in today's world of social media, what I call sometimes the social sewer, we have a different use of the word followers. And so can you just draw that distinction for us?
2: Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Because when you said followers, I immediately think of influencers, and I want to (laughs) puke.
1: That would be right there with thought leaders, I guess. (laughs) Yes,
2: yes, that too. (laughs) Oh, how do I even say this without sounding really horrible? I think that's part of what we don't want to lose, is that ability to make that human connection goes way beyond followers. It goes way beyond manipulation, which I equate with influencers and thought leaders. That's a control, top-down way of interacting with people. And that's part of the shift that we have to make if we're going to be successful in solving complex problems and if we're going to be a real leader, is this whole idea of power over. Instead of power with. And that co- contrast between the importance of the individual and the importance of community, that's a continuum. And where we are in that continuum has everything to do with our ability to be a leader in the future. If we are too far an individual, that gets back to that heroic leadership. And what about me? And if you look at our whole systems that are breaking down, we've gotten too far to that extreme. So community, on the other hand, if you get too far to that extreme, you can't have a system that only operates for community. In nature, if you ask Mother Nature, which is more important to a healthy community, the individual or the community, she'd laugh in your face and say, well, you have to have both and it has to be in balance. And I think that's another way of looking at what you've just asked is, what's our balance between individual and community? And if you intend to have followers, you've got to understand that those, that continuum, is where we are as a society. We've got to
1: figure that out and bring that better and back into balance. Did that make sense? It did make sense, and I I really think that the example of Mother Nature is true. I know I'm tired of of living in extremes on on all sorts of things. Something as plain as you know what I eat and how I have my diet all the way to how I work and and definitely interaction with other people. So you talk about gaps between what used to work and what will work in the future. We have something similar in our work we call minding the gap You know between where you are today financially and where you want to go. I, I suspect part of what you're sharing with us is the need to go beyond 140 or 240 characters in communication. What guidance are you sharing uh, about closing that gap for leaders that you work with, the gap from where they are today and where what's going to work in that in the future and how I really am asking too how we you know, you've touched on it, but how we talk to each other and, and how how long those conversations might have to be to to mo- get movement.
2: Well, it gets back to, again, those fundamental shifts that I alluded to, that shift of power over to power with. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And you can't be ego centered. And accomplish that. You have to be able to look at an entire system. And, and a simple analogy I use to illustrate this is, remember, you might remember, Bonnie, some of our, our younger listeners might not, that it was very popular in human resource, and I hate that word, human capital, which is even worse, <laughs> um, thinking that talked about, you know, getting the right people on the bus. Well, a bus implies what is a metaphor?
1: Well, it's your dream for one thing, and it was going really fast, but go ahead. And and it was
2: going in one direction, right? You (laughs) have one driver, and everybody else is lined up on the bus, and they're passively going along for the ride. That was the old way. That's the heroic leadership. When you're in a manufacturing or industrial mindset, that works, because your goal is to do what? Make things run more smoothly. But when you're living in the middle of disruption – when you're living with a system that has outstripped the resources of the planet, it doesn't work anymore. And so that's where that shift to to power with and community needs to start moving in a different direction. And a metaphor I like that expresses that better is a white water rafting guide. If you think about what it's like to get into white water, and I don't know Bonnie, if you've had that experience I of being have. on white water. Love it. So, yes. You recognize that how you travel and how you are together as a team in that white water is completely different. You can be on the exact same section of water two days after significant rains, like we've had the last couple of weeks, and you're going to have one experience. And you might get on that same section of water a couple months later when the water level is really low, and it's a completely different experience. So, part of what I'm pointing to is the ability to read the entire environment. And to work together as a team, to learn to raft as you go, learning as you go is another big piece of that. And learning to paddle and learning all of the things in order to stay stable and safe and reading the conditions as you go, that's part of that experience. So I can't even remember your question now.
1: Well, no, you you answered it. But I would say, too, the other uh, part of that metaphor with the whitewater rafting is there's only so much you can see from your position. So trusting the other people who can see from their position is really key as well.
2: And everybody making a contribution based on their strengths and where they are in the raft, right? So that notion is very much a part of what I think we have to do differently. And it gets back to, again, the same core principles I mentioned earlier, going to a whole system approach as opposed to that heroic leadership.
1: Well, I sometimes think that uh, honestly, if you got someone in a raft, if you could teach leadership in these ways, physical uh, sensation uh, experiences versus a book, that might be part of the solution as well. So, and plus it gets everybody outside. I really like that idea.
2: You just used a word that sometimes I shy from using, but it's a very big piece of what it takes to go into the future, and that's sensing. Mm. Because, and that's how we distinguish ourselves again from that information base where we talk about how what we know is not as important as who we are as a human being. If we pay more attention to who we are as a human being, that sensing piece, that ability to read the environment and to read other people and to read how the environment is changing and to be able to operate within that system in the way that is not selfish... Selfish in the I'm only concerned about me perspective is what I think is going to contribute to us being able to solve problems as opposed to, again, just falling out of the raft and being left to drown. I love my travel
1: metaphors, by the way, (laughs) the bus, the raft, (laughs) whatever works. Before we leave your work for a few minutes, what what do you love about it? And what do you still find most challenging?
2: I get lost in it, just like I have in this interview. I, I really love learning. I like the opportunity to observe how things are changing and figure out what else should I be noticing here? What else is possible? You know, what who else knows something about this? What's another perspective? What haven't I thought about here? That's I love getting up during the day and having that kind of intellectual challenge. And then from an interpersonal standpoint, I love the fact that I can look back over my life and see how I've changed and how my values have changed. And I'm proud that you know, I, I am changing Sure, and I am Abil- growing. Yes.
1: You're right, not stagnant. And is there something that you still find really challenging about the work?
2: Oh, for God's sakes, Everything. yes. Everything? <laughs> Everything. I mean, again, just trying to explain what it is that I do so to market with, it's impossible. It's impossible. People want to buy simple solutions. They want dock in a box. They want something fast and easy. And can I take a pill, please? And call me in the morning. And that's not where we are now as a society, as a people. And it's hard to go on that kind of a a learning and developmental challenge and not everybody's up for it.
1: Well, I I think that's a really interesting thing to point out about the challenges, helping other people understand what it is you actually do. I I know that I'm I'm not even a member of the Chamber of Commerce anymore because our local chamber, while filled with terrific, nice people, uh, they just encourage this 30-second elevator thing that is so the antithesis of our work. I, I can't participate. So I can really appreciate that, you know, when you want real change. It isn't fast. And um, it does take more. It takes more time to explain it and certainly takes more time to accomplish it. But we're going to switch gears a little bit. You and I have both lived through divorce and and live to tell the tale. We work on the money. You work on people in your work. Divorce is definitely a transformation. But how do you view that period of your life today with some distance? And what might you share with others that are facing that sort of head on? Well, it's again,
2: it's a matter of choice. I was married for 29 years. and as I already told you, my husband was extremely supportive. Um, so we were great partners in our marriage. And what changed was, I think over time, as I became more clear about that that next 50 or next 20 year plan, and what my values were, my values had changed. I wasn't in that same space anymore. and so as we continued to grow apart, When it came time for yet another move, my husband literally said to me, are we going to do this again?
1: I have been in those shoes. I understand that question.
2: Yep. Because that was how we entered our marriage was we literally said, every year we're going to have this conversation. We want to talk about, you know, what is it that we're doing here? So when he asked that inevitable question, the answer was, I think we need to take a step back and really think about this. And no, I don't want it to. I'm still interested in making this change, but I understand that you may not be, and so we need to have that conversation. We made that decision to separate, and I'm not saying it wasn't hard. It was very hard, um, especially for the person who ultimately is left behind as you know, he did not want to make that additional move and it was not about a career at that point. I think he was just frankly tired of being on the treadmill. And the value for him wasn't there as much as it was before. And it also wasn't there for me because in a lot of respects, he was my second child. (laughs) He's a very loving individual. He was great um, in terms of our marriage. But his expectations in terms of what he wanted for the rest of his life were also very different. And so when we talked about it, it just didn't make sense for us to continue being married. So we decided to separate, ultimately divorce, and I paid for the divorce, and I paid five years of maintenance so that he had the opportunity to transition into what was next for him.
1: So as part of what you're saying that, you know, between two people, you can decide anything. And, uh, and if you just get to talking about it, sometimes the solutions sift through. And that doesn't make them
2: solutions easy, by the way. Right,
1: of course not. So we think many, if not most, conversations eventually lead to money and its impact, good or bad, on the topic that is at hand. When when did you first become aware of money in your life, and what do you wish you'd been taught about money as you were growing up? Oh. <laughs> so money for us
2: when I was growing up was not abundant. We didn't have a lot of it. My parents were both college educated. My mother actually had to suspend her career. Uh, she was studying to be a nurse, and at that time, you weren't allowed to be married, so when initially when I was very young, and probably through uh, my high school years as well, my parents didn't have a lot of money, and so scarcity was a part of how we lived. You know, there were periods in my life where I wore hand-me-downs. There was also periods of my life when my dad um, might have been in between jobs, where my mom would shop for groceries at a neighborhood grocery store because they would allow her to pay on credit. By credit, that, I don't mean a credit card. I mean she could build up a tab until payday when she could actually afford to pay it. But I also remember getting a passbook savings account and my parents talking to me about having a savings account and how important it was to put money away. Even though we didn't have it, I think that was pretty funny. It's like, okay, you need to know about this. And so money for me wasn't something that was at the core or the center of how we lived. We made hard choices based on the money that we had that was available. And I think that's pretty much how I've lived my life. So I've done some planning, although I could have done better planning. For example, I didn't really start to save for my retirement until way too late. Mm -hmm. Very common. I had way too much credit card debt in the early part of my marriage. In fact, it wasn't until I got divorced that I was able to pay off all that debt and start fresh. So that's, you know, those are hard lessons learned. But if I look back and say, what would I have done differently, other than starting to save earlier and probably making uh, less frivolous purchases, I don't think my basic attitude about money is that much different today. Yeah, wealth was something that it facilitated a, a life well lived. It wasn't an object and a goal in and of itself.
1: Got it. And it's great that your parents, you know, introduced you to the idea of savings. And you've also shared two really important lessons, uh, the idea about, you know, not building up too much credit. And so I appreciate you sharing those. It's it's the kind of thing that we're always trying to tell people, if you'd start early, it's fewer dollars that, are, that have to be saved. It's just a message that is sort of absent in the larger discussions. But as we finish up today, I'm curious, in your dream story, you talked about changing your focus from your Career to working toward a life uh, well lived. So, what does a well-lived life look like for you now? I think making
2: memories with the people that you love is really important, and you don't necessarily again have the money to do everything. But on the other hand, if you make memories, sometimes the it doesn't really matter as much. So, making memories is something I think is really important. And I think continuing to be able to learn and grow, you know, I want to be able to continue to learn and to use my my mind, but also the way that I interact in trying to help other people develop themselves is really an, an important piece of that as well. So that's why I do what I do. I want people to live to their full potential. And- I also agree that having some financial wherewithal in order to uh, live a modest life, but one that is a healthy lifestyle is also important. So I've made tough decisions in this second 20-year plan that I've had to compromise in the way that I used to live just by virtue of the change in my, in my wealth and how much money I have at my dis, uh, disposal now versus what I had, say, maybe 15 years ago.
1: Well, it's so interesting because um, in in our work, we're seeing uh, shifting priorities where even people who might not have a constraint on uh, how much money they can spend are putting the constraint in because they just want their legacy of how they spent their money and how they enjoyed what they had to be different than what it was Uh, less collecting, less of a footprint altogether. And, um, and that footprint seems to be expanding to what they leave in the world of themselves versus their things. So I appreciate you sharing that too. Thank you, Gwen, for your time and your insights today and all your wisdom. Thanks
2: for asking.
1: We wish you continued happiness and great health. And I know you'll find success. And I do want to see that book. Uh, You can (laughs) see Gwen speaking on her website. If you'd like to learn more about her and the important work she's doing, go to her website at GwenKinsey.com. That's G-W-E-N-K-I-N-S-E-Y.com. Thanks again, Gwen.
2: Thank you.
0: This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.